You know, every generation of Christians has had to fight for the purity and exclusivity of the gospel. Do you know that? It's a fact. That from the very beginning, the church has been called to contend earnestly for the faith, to fight for the faith. And the reason for that is because the truth is a treasure of infinite value, worth defending and worth fighting, and it is worth dying for. So church, you need to understand that hardwired into the equation, hardwired into the deal of what it means to be a believer is that we must fight for the purity and the exclusivity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it all began with Christ himself and who in Matthew 7.15 said, beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves continued on with the apostle paul who in the book of galatians do you remember that stepped into the ring against the jewish legalists and he tells all those who wish to pervert the gospel that they could go to hell in chapter 1 verse 9 he says if anyone comes to you and preaches a gospel besides what you receive from us let him be accursed let him be condemned Continued on when Paul told Titus in chapter 1, verse 11, that false teachers must be silenced, not with a hug, not with a smile, but with a sharp rebuke, he says, because they destroy entire families. In response to false teachers infiltrating the, infiltrating the churches, creeping in unaware, Jude said, I am exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was delivered once for all to the saints. You see, church, it is an apostolic mandate that we must contend earnestly for the faith. We as believers, it is hardwired into the deal that we would fight for the purity and the exclusivity of the gospel. And yet you understand that this fight for the truth didn't just stop with the apostles. It continued on in the first and second centuries with Clement of Rome, Ignatius, and Justin Martyr, who gave their own lives to protect the purity of the gospel. The church father, Ignatius, was fed to the lions at the Colosseum by the Roman government because of his unwavering commitment to preach Jesus Christ as Lord. Polycarp, second century, arrested as a senior citizen by the Roman government who told him that all he had to do to escape certain death was to deny Christ and worship the emperor, to which he replied, 86 years I have served Christ and never once did he wrong me. How then could I blaspheme my king? He was then tied to the stake and burned alive as a senior citizen. Justin Martyr, second century, went toe-to-toe -to -toe against antagonistic and violent Jews against whom he def defended the deity and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and he did so until they killed him for it. Irenaeus, second century, waged war against Gnosticism, a heresy that denied the humanity of Christ and the incarnation of Christ, and he battled for the deity and the incarnation and the resurrection and the, and the, the humanity of Christ until he was eventually cut down by the enemies of the gospel. Of course, we can't forget Athanasius, can we? Fourth century in Alexandria of Egypt, who fought a heresy known as Arianism, a false teaching that denied the deity of Christ, that, didn't, that rejected the Trinity. And you need to understand that in his day, more people denied the Trinity than believed in the Trinity. And yet, even though they tried to murder him, Athanasius stood unmoved. He was willing to be one man against the world, contra mundum, stepping up against the entire world to defend the Trinity and the deity of Christ. And of course, there was Augustine, 5th century, battled the heretic Pelagius, and Pelagius, you understand, he rejected total depravity, he rejected sovereign grace and original sin and uh, the slavery to sin, which cut the throat of the very gospel, and Augustine went to war against him even until he was in his 80s. And there were others. Lots and lots of other people who defended the purity and exclusivity of the gospel. People who were beaten and bludgeoned and burned alive for the very truths that you and I just assume and speak of without even flinching. And you understand it is 
defending the purity and exclusivity of the gospel. That's what the Reformation is all about. Now, when I say Reformation, I mean the Protestant Reformation, the original protesters. By the Protestant Reformation, I mean that moment in history when the lamp of the gospel of grace was relit after centuries of darkness. I mean that moment when the gospel was rediscovered amidst the rubble of a thousand years of man-made traditions and superstitious beliefs. I mean one of the most triumphant and significant moments, not merely in church history, but even in human history. That's the Reformation. That's what this morning is all about. That's what this whole month is all about. You understand we're having a theological party this month, celebrating the Reformation which began 505 years ago, celebrating when sovereign grace was rediscovered amidst the wreckage of the Roman Catholic Church. I'm anxious for you, church. I am anxious for you not merely to learn a little history and a bunch of dates, but that you would be gripped by your theological heritage left for you by your comrades in the 14th, 15th, and 16th centuries. You understand, these are men who gave their lives to light the torch of the gospel. These are men who gave and lost their lives for the purity and exclusivity of the gospel. I'm anxious for you because now the torch is now being passed to you as a generation of new reformers to march into the darkness to do the same as they. The cost of your jobs, the cost of success perhaps, the cost of popularity. For some of us, perhaps, we never know, you never know, jail time could be awaiting, ostracism could be awaiting, hostility, animosity, persecution, violence. It's now in your hands as a generation of new reformers. So what we're going to do this morning and next week and even the week after that is not merely celebrate what Christ has done, but recruit you to join the fight for the purity and exclusivity of the gospel. So here's where we're going this morning, and I cannot wait. The sermon will be divided up into four parts. Part one, I'm going to define the Reformation and explain the, the grim historical black hole out of which the Reformation emerged. Number two, I'm going to briefly preach the life and the legacy and the achievements of Martin Luther, who was the man Christ used to launch the Reformation. Number three, I'm going to preach the five radical commitments of the Reformers, known as the five solas. And then part four, I'm going to close with five implications for you to take up the gospel of grace as new Reformers in a hostile and dangerous 21st century. That's where we're going. And so, part one. Part one, the Reformation and the black hole out of which it exploded the Reformation, and the black hole out of which it exploded. Because it is as they say, isn't it? It's always darkest just before the dawn. And it's no different when it comes to the Reformation. You see, if the Reformation more or less began on October 31st, 1517, you need to know that the previous thousand years leading up to that moment were some of the most grim centuries in human history. You see, from the 5th to the 15th century in Europe, there's this dismal storm cloud that just hangs over human history. But you see, what you have to understand is that what makes those 10 long centuries of the Dark Ages so dreadful was not the Black Death Plague that killed almost half the population of Europe. It was not the brutality of Muslim invaders who swept through Europe, drenching it with blood. It was not the widespread famines and diseases. It wasn't the crippling poverty or the tragic starvation rate. It wasn't even the disappearance of technological progress or innovation. Rather, what made the Dark Ages so dark and tragic, get this, is that the doctrine that salvation was by God's sovereign grace alone was all but forgotten. You see, for 10 centuries, Europe shivered in the cold shadow of a Roman Catholic theology that taught that although salvation was purchased by Christ, it was earned by your works. And while that may not sound particularly shocking or sinister at first, what that meant was that if you wanted to get saved, you had better earn your forgiveness. You had better buy your redemption. 
If you were going to appease the wrath of God that burned against you, you had better work for your salvation. But the problem is the church had so wired the process down to an art that nobody knew how good was good enough. And so the result is for people over a thousand years were slaves to fear. Darkness of the dark ages was the disappearance of the doctrine that salvation was by God's sovereign grace alone. And the Bible, the Bible was hidden and obscured in Latin for a thousand years to which nobody had access to except the priests. And even if they did have access to it, most people didn't even know Latin. People had no idea that they were a part of the greatest theological cover-up and conspiracy in, in, in human history. Nobody knew that the foundational doctrines of the Catholic Church about salvation were not only not in the Bible, they were against the Bible. Listen to John Fox, a church historian in the mid-1500s, wrote a book, a thick book about martyrs called Fox's Book of Martyrs. Compelling, riveting, he said this about the Dark Ages. He said, at this time, Christianity was in a sad state. Although everyone knew the name of Christ, few, if any, understood his doctrine. Instead, the Roman church was solely concerned with outward ceremony and human traditions. People spent their entire lives heaping up one ceremony after another in the hopes of salvation, not knowing that it was simply theirs for the asking. Simple, uneducated people, he said, who had no knowledge of Scripture were content to know only what the priests told them, and those priests took care only to teach what came from Rome, most of which was for the profit of their own orders and not for the glory of Christ. Imagine what this is like. This is devastating. No access to the Bible. None. No podcasts. No Bible conferences. No local churches. No pastors actually expositing God's word. And if they were, they were killed by the Catholic Church. No books published with sound theology. And if there were, they were burned by the church. In fact, get this, it was forbidden. It was forbidden by the Catholic Church even to read the Bible in your own language. For instance, in 1519, in a town called Coventry, England, seven men were burned alive for teaching their children the Lord's Prayer in English. Do you see what I mean when I say that the years leading up to the Reformation were a black hole? It's tragic. We don't even have a category for this. And now, don't get me wrong, there were reformers before the reformers. There were people who stood up for the centrality and the supremacy of Christ. There were people who stood up for the sufficiency of Scripture. There were people who stood up for the sovereignty of grace in salvation, like the Waldensians and the Petrobrusians of the 1100s. Men like John Wycliffe in the 1300s, and my hero in whose pulpit I personally stood, Jan Hus of the 1400s in the Czech Republic, and they killed them all. They killed all of them. pay the ultimate price giving their lives for the purity and exclusivity of the gospel, which is exactly what the Reformation is. And so you need to understand that when we're defining the Reformation, we're not talking about a movement led only by one man. Rather, this is, this is a, one of the most controversial and thrilling eras in the history of the church. This is a story that needs to be told again and again and again. They say to forget history is to be doomed to repeat it, but we will be doomed if we don't repeat it. This is our heritage. This is our history. This is our biography. This is our spiritual family tree. The reformers are our comrades. The Reformation, you understand, here's what it is. The Reformation is a history of altering movement ordained by God that was at its very essence the recovery of the true gospel of Jesus Christ. 
To put it another way, the Reformation was when the supremacy of God in salvation resurrected the church out of the spiritual graveyard in which it had been buried for centuries. Or to put the Reformation in its most crude terms, it is when authentic Christianity emerged out of and severed itself from the Roman Catholic Church with its counterfeit gospel of works and merit. Steve Lawson, author, theologian, put it like this. The church in that day was greatly in need of reform. Spiritual darkness personified the Roman Catholic Church. The Bible was a closed book. Spiritual ignorance ruled the minds of the people. The gospel was perverted. Church tradition trumped divine truth. Personal holiness was abandoned. The rotten stench of man-made traditions covered pope and priest alike. The corruption of ungodliness contaminated both dogma and practice. And yet, and yet, everything changed. On October 31st, 1517, when a monk from Germany named Martin Luther hammered onto the Wittenberg church doors a document that exposed some of the most tragic corruptions of the Catholic church. And in that moment, everything changed. Like literally, this led to the shifting of entire civilizations. It was one of those proverbial rocks in the pond of history, the ripple effects we are still feeling even down to this very day, which brings me now to the man and the moment when it all began, part two. Part two, which I'm calling The Monk Who Shook a Kingdom. The Monk Who Shook a Kingdom, a biography of Martin Luther. Because one of the things I love about Martin Luther is that he is proof that even nobodies can change the world, which is what he was and what he did. You don't understand that the, the impact of Luther's life on history, especially our history as the redeemed of Christ, is simply incalculable. Luther was essentially the the pioneer reformer, the first reformer whom God would use to light the torch of truth to bring the entirety of Western civilization out of spiritual darkness. Again and again, it's true. Luther stood on the shoulders of so many men who came before him, so many men. And while they should get the credit for building the bomb of the Reformation, it was Luther who lit the fuse. Not the son of a king, but of a copper miner. Luther was born in 1483 in Eiselben, Germany, raised with seven other siblings in a blue-collar, middle-class home. His father was not unloving or unkind, but he was rough and he was gruff and all but demanded that Martin go to law school, become a lawyer, which he obediently did. He's not a great student. He eventually did graduate and get a bachelor's degree in law at the age of 19, ranking 30th of 57 in his class. In 1505, he went on to pursue his uh, master's degree in law at the University of Erfurt. And 1505 was a big year because it was that summer after his freshman year at university on his way back home for summer vacation that the pivotal moment happened. A sort of Damascus Road experience, just like for the Apostle Paul. It was July 2nd. He even gives us the date. It was July 2nd, on his way home from university, and he was caught in a thunderstorm, which apparently was so terrifying that he literally thought he was going to die. In fact, lightning struck so close to him that it knocked him to the ground, and in the darkness, in the rain, he cried out to the sky, and he did the most bizarre thing. He said, "If he said, help me, Saint Anne, and I will become a monk. <laughs> what does that even mean? Well, you know how people who even hate God will cry out to God in a moment of panic and fear? That's what this was. Except instead of crying out to God, he cried out to Saint Anne. You know who Saint Anne is? According to the Catholic Church, she is the patron saint of mine workers, workers in the mine. Luther's father worked in the mine, and so St. Anne was sort of the household idol or deity to whom the family prayed for help. And so do you realize what Luther just did? He made a deal, a bargain with St. Anne. If you save me and get me out of this alive, I will become a monk for the Catholic Church, which is bizarre. Because he he feared for his very soul. And since he did not know how to find security in the safety of the gospel, he picked the next best thing he could, which was to find safety in the monastery. Came home, 
told his father he was quitting law school to become a monk. His father flipped his lid for wasting all that money on that expensive education. And yet, nevertheless, despite his father's outrage, Martin packed his bags and 15 days later kept his vow. On July 17, 1505, he knocked on the gates of the Augustinian hermits at, at Erfurt and asked to be received as a monk in the monastery. He was accepted, and two years later, he was ordained as a priest in the Roman Catholic Church. And needless to say, Luther was representative of the kind of troubled soul you could easily find within the walls of the Catholic Church. What I mean is, what I mean is, is that as a typical Roman Catholic, he lived in constant fear and dread for his own soul. As a Catholic, he always lived in the fearful, terrifying dilemma of having zero assurance about his own salvation because in Roman Catholic theology, there is no such thing. You have to essentially earn your own salvation, but once you get it, you can lose it just as fast. And you never know how good is good enough as a Catholic, and so there's always the sense that God is angry with you, and you have to appease his wrath with good works. You have to do rituals and confessions and acts of penance, but you're never really quite sure which way the scales are tipped. And you see, it is this kind of theology that absolutely crushed Martin Luther of an avalanche of fear and despair. He said, in the monastery, I did not so much think about women, money, or possessions. Instead, my heart trembled and fidgeted about whether God would bestow his grace upon me. For I had strayed from faith, and I could not but imagine that I had angered God, whom I entered hand to appease by doing good works. If I could believe, and this might be some of you, if I could believe that God was not angry with me, I would stand on my head for joy. Did you hear the anguish? this man's soul. In the monastery, he was so overwhelmed with his own sin and guilt and wickedness that he would spend hours upon hours in confession, racking his memory for any unconfessed sin he could think of. As a sort of self-salvation, he would abuse his body with ascetic acts to somehow gain atonement for his sins. When church historian said Luther pushed his body to the self cracking rigors of austerity. He sometimes fasted for three days and slept without a blanket in the freezing winter. He was driven by a profound sense of his own sinfulness and God's unutterable majesty. And you have to understand, he did these kinds of things not to feel superior to other bozos, but just to do anything he could think of that would somehow move God to have mercy upon his soul. He punished himself. He abused himself. He hurt himself to try to atone for his own iniquities, not knowing that God had already sent one to be punished in the place of the most notorious of sinners. Because you understand, although Luther knew the name of Christ, what Christ had done for sinners had been tragically buried under a thousand years of man-made tradition and superstition. And Luther's mentors and, and leaders and, and, and disciplers and trainers, they didn't know what to do with him. This, this emotionally unstable young priest constantly in fear and dread and trepidation for his own soul, they had no idea what to do with him. And so his mentor, a man named Johannes von Staupitz, took a real risk. And in 1509, he asked Luther to teach the Bible full time at the university. That's what priests did in those days. They were the university professors. Before this, Luther had been teaching philosophy. And so now he asked Luther to teach full-time, teach the Bible full-time at the University of Wittenberg. So what this means is, this very carefully, is that a majority of his time would now be dedicated to studying and lecturing and teaching on the Bible, which he had never done before in his life which means we are moving our way ever closer to the Reformation. You need to understand here, Luther is not a Christian at this time. And not in the way we understand Christianity. He has not yet embraced Jesus Christ alone. 
He has not yet been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. He is a traditional Roman Catholic seeking to obtain his own salvation through the contribution of his own good works. Which means like Nicodemus, he is about to find out that everything he has ever believed or been taught about salvation is wrong. Three years later, October 19, 1512, at the age of age 28, Luther received his doctorate in theology and became a full-time professor of the Bible and theology at the university, steeped and buried in Catholic doctrine and tradition and theology, still in turmoil over his own soul, but that was all very soon about to change. Because one of the things I love about how God ordains history is the sense of irony. How God uses the most seemingly unlikely things to advance his plan, to advance his global cause. Because get this, in the year 1516, note the year, the year before the Reformation, in the year 1516, a man named Erasmus, a Dutch scholar, a humanist, a zealous member of the Catholic Church and eventual persecutor of the Reformation actually produced the very instrument that God would use to unleash the Reformation. You know what he did? He published the first ever printed Greek New Testament. That is a massive development. That is absolutely astounding. I mean, you could get copies before that, but they were handwritten and they were bulky, and they were expensive, and they were hard to come by. But now, but now, this Catholic scholar, an eventual hater of Luther and the Reformation, built and distributed the very atomic bomb that would detonate the world and cause the Reformation to come into being. Do you know what that is? That is providence. That is sovereignty. That is God governing everything that comes to pass. So here's Luther, here he is, teaching the Bible, theology, full-time at the university, gets his hands on a Greek New Testament, and guess what begins to happen? All of a sudden, the walls begin to crumble. The darkness begins to lift. The very fabric of how he previously understood God and Christ and sin and salvation begin to come unraveled. All of a sudden, all the warts and the distortions and the mutilations and the deformities that he had been taught his whole life long were now beginning to show. Why? Because now he could read in the text himself in the original Greek without the polluted trappings of the state-approved Latin version of the Bible. Now he could read the text himself without the, the, the centuries of commentators with their Catholic biases. He could see what the text actually meant, what the text actually says. He was starting to see for the very first time ever that so many things he had been taught and believed about salvation were wrong. Put it this way, he could see that so many foundational things that the Catholic Church had taught about salvation were not only not in the Bible, they were against the Bible. So needless to say that Luther's views were radically shaping shifting in a hurry. Fast forward to the moment, there's a lot that transpired. On October 31st, 1517, he took a document in which was contained 95 theses or disputations or, or protests. These are theological bones to pick with the Catholic Church, statements that disputed the Catholic Church teaching on how to gain salvation and how to be forgiven. And in that day, nailing something to the castle church doors, that wasn't particularly heroic. Everybody did that. That was the ancient version of the bulletin board or the, or the ancient Twitter. And yet this post on Twitter went so viral that it would rip apart the very fabric of Western Europe. Now, because I have minutes, not hours, let me skip to the moment of Luther's conversion because at this point, he's still not saved. I mean, he, he could clearly see that there were so many things that the Roman Catholic Church taught that were not in the Bible, but he had not yet embraced the reality of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. He had not yet understood the reality that full pardon for his sins was just there for the asking. 
And so you remember the steam of controversy had been building in Europe because of these 95 theses. They were taken, they were translated, they were copied, they were redistributed throughout Europe. Meanwhile, he's still studying, lecturing on the Bible at the university, still wrestling mightily with what the Bible actually taught about salvation. And again, you have to understand, this is no ivory tower theologian, you know, in his cushy office doing theological horseplay. This is a man fighting for his very soul. This is a man engaged in a bleary-eyed, battle-wearied struggle for his own soul. Because you understand, if what the Roman Catholic Church taught was true, there was zero, zero assurance that he would ever be forgiven, that he would ever see the kingdom, that he would ever receive eternal life. Zero assurance. And yet it was around April of 1518 that while studying and agonizing over the book of Romans, that he settled the matter once and for all. So picture him. He's in his dimly lit study, crudely shaped study desk, Greek New Testament on his desk, studying, preparing to lecture on the book of Romans, and there was a certain phrase in chapter 1, verse 17, that stood in his way. Let me read to you verses 16 and 17, and then we'll talk about the phrase that haunted him. Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Verse 17, for in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. For as it has been written, the righteous shall live by faith. And that's the phrase right there, the righteousness of God. That's the phrase that held him up. That's the phrase that stood in his way. That was the hurdle. That was the obstacle. And yet studying that very phrase, just two words in Greek, studying that very phrase was the phrase that not only saved his soul, but brought about the very Reformation itself. I want you to listen to Luther's own account of his own conversion which happened, get this, through the beautiful agony and study and meditation on sacred scripture. Listen to what he says. I had indeed been captivated with an extraordinary ardor for understanding Paul in the epistle to the Romans. But up until then, it was a single phrase in chapter 1, verse 17, the righteousness of God that stood in my way. For I hated that word, the righteousness of God which according to the use and custom of all the Catholic teachers, I had been taught that it is the righteousness with which God punishes the sinner. Though I lived as a monk without reproach, I knew that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I could not believe that his wrath could be appeased by my good works. Thus, I did not love. Yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. I was angry with God. Thus, I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience. Nevertheless, I beat importunately upon Paul at that place, most ardently desiring to know what St. Paul wanted. At last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, notice what he does here, I gave heed to the context of the words. There I began to understand that the righteousness of God, listen carefully, is that by which the righteous lives as a gift of God, namely by faith. And thus the meaning of the text became clear. The righteousness of God revealed by the gospel is the righteousness with which the merciful God justifies us by faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. That may not sound much, but do you like much to be? You know, do you know what he discovered? He just came to grips with the reality that acceptance with God is not something that we attain by our own good works that outweigh the bad, as if that were even possible. 
but that our acceptance with God is given to us when we believe in Jesus Christ alone. Do you know what that's called? That's called justification by faith. That is called the imputation of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. What does it mean? It means that through faith, God imparts to the sinner the very righteousness of his son so that when God sees us, he sees us with the very righteousness of Jesus Christ, not just as not guilty, but even as righteous. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Sinner, saint, believer, did you know that in Christ the Father sees you as righteous? That there is nothing to contribute to the death of Christ? That the debt has been paid in full? That you are not merely just not guilty? that the Father views you with the very righteousness of His Son. Did you know that? That is freeing, isn't it? That is beautiful, isn't it? And that's what He discovered. And when He did, He wrote this. Here I felt that I was altogether born again, which of course He was. And that I had entered paradise itself through open gates. Here a totally other face of the entire scripture showed itself to me. And I extolled my sweetest word with a love as great as the hatred with which I had before hated the phrase righteousness of God. Thus that place in Paul became for me the gates to paradise itself. It's incredible. Isn't that, isn't that ironic to you that the entire Reformation was birthed out of a blood and guts study and meditation of the Bible? It's incredible. That's why, that's why I harp on reading and meditating the Bible. Uh, not because it's some box-checking superficiality or because it makes God like you more but because it is the gates to paradise. You see, you don't spend time in God's word to make God happy with you. You spend time in God's word to be happy in God above all things. That's how God changes the world. Through his work, through his word in your own soul, and then through you transforming the world. And so the fuse had been lit. The fuse had been lit by Luther by the 95 Theses, and the controversy was now way too heated for Pope Leo to ignore. And so in the summer of 1520, Pope Leo sent a summons, a court order, a, known as a papal bull to Luther, that he was to appear in court that next year and give an account for his heresies. And you understand Luther is no dummy. Being a long-standing member and priest in the Catholic Church, he knew exactly what they did to heretics, there would be no guarantee that he would ever make it to his trial, let alone that there would even be a trial, but only an execution. And yet he remained unmoved. He said this to his students in a lecture one time. He says, even if the emperor calls me to Worms, the city where the trial would be held, in order to kill me or to declare me an enemy of the gospel, I shall freely offer to come. With Christ helping me, I shall not run away nor shall I abandon God's word in this struggle. So Luther appeared at trial. That next spring, April 16, 1521, the next day he stood before the council, a table before him in front of him with his books and writings and tracts and sermons. Before him at a table were priests and cardinals, and even the very emperor of the empire itself sitting before him. And you understand, they were not interested in having him defend his views or explain his views. They knew exactly what his views were. Rather, you understand, Luther was expected to apologize for his crimes, heresy, and for so blatantly contradicting the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. But the second he opened his mouth, it was not to be. Here is the famous statement. He looked at them and he said, I will tell you straight what I think, as if Luther ever did anything other than that. 
I will tell you straight what I think. I am a Christian theologian. And I am bound not only to assert, but to defend the truth with my blood and my death. And that's what I want for you. Because those days are increasingly coming for us. He goes on, I believe freely. And I will be the slave, I will be a slave to the authority of no one. Listen to what he says. Whether council or university or the Pope, I am bound to the scriptures. I have quoted and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not retract anything. Since it is neither safe nor right for me to go against my conscience, I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand. May God help me. Amen. It's powerful and dramatic words, and yet it was not high drama that he was going for. Rather, what hung in the balance for Luther, what hangs in the balance for us is eternal souls hearing the life-giving, soul-saving gospel of Jesus Christ untainted by human contamination. When he said that the battle lines were drawn, the Reformation began, and it continues to this day. We are the new reformers. Which brings me now to part three. So much more could, should be said about his life, translating the Bible into German. Incredible. An entire sermon could be devoted to that. But part three, I want to preach on the five solas. Very quickly, the five solas, which are the radical commitments of the reformers. So part three, the five solas. Because you have to understand, what, what defined the Reformation and the Reformers was not merely the things that they were against, but the things they were profoundly for. It, it, what, what drove men like Luther and Calvin and Latimer and Cranmer and Tyndale was not so much the heresy that they hated, but the truths that they treasured. And over time, it became very clear that there were five things, at least five things that defined the Reformation, and not even just the Reformation, but, the, but defined Christianity itself. Things that are so sacred, so ultimate, so definitive, that depending on what you do with them, determine where you will spend eternity. They are the five solas. Here they are. Radical commitment number one. Sola Scriptura. Scripture alone. Sola Scriptura. Scripture alone alone. In other words, what is the fountain and foundation of our faith? What is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart? What is ultimate reality and the absolute truth upon which we stake our eternal destinies? Answer, sola scriptura, scripture alone. Commitment number two, sola gratia, grace alone. Sola gratia, grace alone. In other words, what is it? What is it that motivated God to single you out and select you for salvation in eternity past? To what do we owe the credit for every single aspect of our salvation without exception? What is the sovereign freedom and pleasure of God to choose particular number of souls before the foundation of the world and write their names in the Lamb's book of life? What is it called when God saves sinners from what they most deserve and gives them what they least deserve, namely himself to be enjoyed forever? The answer is sola gratia, grace alone. Commitment number four, sola fide, faith alone, sola fide, faith alone. In other words, in other words, what is the brokenhearted confession that I have nothing to contribute to my own salvation except the sins that need to be forgiven? What is the means through which the treasure of salvation gets transferred, as it were, to my bankrupt spiritual bank account? What is it called when I sweep all the other competitors away and I grab a hold of Jesus Christ alone as the one who made the solution for my sin by the sacrifice of himself? And the answer is sola fide, faith alone. Commitment number four. 
solus Christus, Christ alone, solus Christus, Christ alone. In other words, who is the one who, although fully, man, fully God, became fully man for us and for our salvation? Who is the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth? Who is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come? Who is the one before whom every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord? Who is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? Who is the bread of life? Who is the light of the world? Who is the way, the truth, and the life? who died in our place and appeased the wrath of God against us. Who is it, I ask? The answer is solus Christus, Christ alone. Commitment number five of the reformers, soli deo gloria. The glory of God alone, soli deo gloria, the glory of God alone. In other words, what is the very meaning of life itself? Why did God design a universe in which would exist sin and evil and sinners who need a Savior? What is the ultimate aim of God in everything He does? Why did He write the particular names He did in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world? Why does God save sinners by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone? And the answer, I could not be more sure of anything in my life. It is soli deo gloria, the glory of God alone. Those are the radical commitments of the Reformers. And maybe you think, that doesn't sound particularly radical. I believe those. I affirm those. I stand for those, and I'm sure that you do. But you see, there once was a time when most of the world didn't believe those and didn't stand for those. And yet the reason why you do believe them and why you do stand for them is because the reformers bled and died for them. Brings me another part four. And then we're done. Five implications as a new generation of reformers. Five implications for you. Number one, church, the Reformation matters. This really matters. And the reason why it does is because the Reformation is not over. You understand that we live in conditions extremely different and yet not totally different from the Dark Ages. We don't live in the Dark Ages now, but we are slipping back into them. But you see, what keeps the lamp of the gospel of grace always burning in the church, what keeps the gospel from being snuffed out by the satanic gospel of human achievements is by remembering what the reformers stood for, namely the life-changing message that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, the message of which is contained in Scripture alone. Implication number two, the solas. The solas matter. And they matter because they distinguish authentic Christianity from all other cults and counterfeits. So whether you like it or not, to hold to Reformation Christianity is authentic Christianity, which makes you a new reformer. Welcome to the club. Number three, the Reformation. The Reformation matters. This matters to us. It matters to you because this is our theological heritage and it reminds us that we stand on the shoulders of so many people who came before us, who bled and died for the very truths that you and I just speak of and think of and believe without even flinching. Never, ever forget, church, that the gospel you believe and the Bible in English that you hold in your hands in which the gospel is found came down to you on an ocean of blood. Number four, the solas. Thinking of the solas again, the, the solas matter. And if there's any hills worth dying on, it is these. You understand, if it's not scripture alone, it's just superstition. If it's not grace alone, it is legalism. 
If it's not faith alone, it is a cult. If it is not Christ alone, it is, de it is demonic. And if it's not for the glory of God alone, it is treason and it is idolatry. Finally, number five, then we're done. Never ever forget that the Reformation continues not merely in the halls of academia or in seminaries, but in homes around the dinner table. Fathers and mothers teaching their children that the only thing that really matters in life is Scripture alone, in which is found the earth-shattering salvation message that God saves sinners by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. And so men, women too, but especially the men, Build your families around these things. Because that is Christianity. And that is radical. And if it's these kinds of things that drive you and define you and delight your soul, you will, like the reformers who came before you, cause ripple effects into eternity always and only for the glory of Jesus Christ. And that is what we want more than anything else in the world. Oh Lord, we're grateful for your providence, for your sovereign work in the life of Luther and others, untold millions of others. Oh Lord, we know that there is a, 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 a thread that connects us today back to Luther and your work in his life. And Lord, I pray that you would help us not merely adore a man, appreciate a man, but through him to see you, O Christ, to see your precious, sacred, beautiful, glorious, exhilarating, redemptive achievements that paid for our salvation in full so that there was nothing left to contribute. Help us, O Lord. I pray that we would be emboldened by the reformers, that we'd be emboldened with, with lion-hearted courage to proclaim the gospel because we literally, Lord, have nothing to be ashamed of. We literally have nothing to fear. Oh, may the lives and legacies of these men drive us to greater proclamation of the life-giving, soul-saving gospel of your Son. And it's in his matchless name that we pray.